Welcome to the Evidence to Impact podcast, the podcast that brings together academic researchers, government partners, and others outside of academia to talk about research insights and real-world policy solutions in Pennsylvania and beyond. I'm Michael Donovan, Director of Policy and Outreach at Penn State's Administrative Data Accelerator. On this episode of the Evidence to Impact podcast, we'll be discussing challenges to mental health among college student populations. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Maitri Gopalan and Dr. Brett Schofield. Maitri is an assistant professor of education and public policy here at Penn State. Brett serves as the associate director of counseling and psychological services, or CAPS, at Penn State, and also as the executive director of the Center for Collegiate Mental Health, or CCMH. We can begin today with some introductions on your background. Maitri, would you start? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Maitre Gopalan. Like Michael said, I'm an assistant professor of education and public policy here at Penn State. I have a few different lines of research, but broadly, I'm interested in research at the intersection of health and education, how school and college contexts especially shape children and adolescents' education, as well as mental health. And I'm really interested in kind of thinking about how health policies broadly, but also education policies really have many spillovers across the domains. And so uh, I really think about my work as doing policy-relevant research that examines psychosocial processes uh, that affect both education and health. Excellent. Thank you so much. Welcome. Brett, how about yourself? Thank you, Michael and Maitri. It's really a pleasure to be here and to talk a little bit about my role. So I serve in two different roles at the university. I'm the Associate Director of Operations at Counseling and Psychological Services. And under Counseling and Psychological Services is the Center for Collegiate Mental Health. And I am the Executive Director of that center. So just a little bit about what CCMH is and what my role is at CCMH. So CCMH is a practice research network of international counseling centers. And we have nearly 700 institutional members. It's one of the largest practice research networks of its kind in the world in terms of focusing on psychotherapy. And what we do as a practice research network is we focus on the sector of college students who are actually seeking care at counseling centers. So we collect and analyze de-identified data as part of the routine practice when students seek mental health treatment at counseling centers internationally and within the United States. That information that we use is used in turn to do research, build tools, and advocate for counseling centers. And this can be a benefit to the counseling centers, administrators, researchers, the public, and most importantly, to the students who are receiving services. Great. Welcome to the show, and thank you both for your important contributions. Uh, my first question is for Brett. Uh, before we get to some of the, the changes and multiple disruptions associated with the pandemic, could you explain really what's been happening around the country in terms of collegiate mental health for the last 20 years? Sure. That's a great question, Michael. So what we know is over the past decade, there's been unprecedented rise in demand for college counseling services nationally. And if you go back in time 20, 30 years ago, I think you can look at that as the foundation to understand what is happening now. So in the past two decades, 
um, there's really been an unprecedented efforts by colleges and universities and external programs to really destigmatize mental health services, identify people who are in need of support and to get them referred and suicide prevention programming. And what we've have found is that we've actually been very successful in these efforts. So what's happened is that over time, more students have been comfortable receiving services. We've become better at identifying students who need services and getting them connected. And what has happened is that you've seen a rise in the number of students seeking services to the point where it's outpaced even the enrollment, because we know college enrollment especially 10, five, 10 years ago was increasing nationally, but counseling services were outpacing the rise in enrollment by over five times the rate between 2009 and 2015. And what has happened is that counseling centers have grown in the amount of students they're serving. Consequently, the caseloads of clinicians have increased significantly without equivalent levels of funding for counseling services to accommodate the rising numbers of students who are now requesting services. We've been great at making students feel comfortable asking for services, but there hasn't been a comparable level of funding to accommodate those students who are now receiving services. One other thing I'd like to say about the last 20 years is CCMH was founded in 2004 by Dr. Ben Locke. And back 20 years ago, we did not have national data on students who were seeking counseling services. And what happened was back in the day, we did know that there was even rising demand for services in the early 2000s. And there was a lot of anecdotal data and opinions about what was happening. And what would usually would win out in terms of affecting policy was the strongest opinion in the room and not data and informed practice. So Center for Collegiate Mental Health was developed in an effort to understand what is happening using standard data so that you can compare students to students across colleges and universities. Thank you, Brett. My next question is for, for Maitri. Could you explain what has changed in higher education when it comes to what students value and really how institutions are changing that? Sure. Yeah, higher education has always been more than spaces where academic learning happens. So even before we get into uh, counseling and mental health, I think it's it's nice to think of a college context a little bit more broadly. It's also the time when most adolescents and young adults, basically at least in the U.S., leave their home spaces for the first time. They uh, move to a new situation, new environment, trying to build social networks, trying to make sense and meaning of their own purpose in the world, along with the intellectual pursuits that they are planning to do. So college context and higher education institutions have embraced their role as places where a lot more than academic learning happens. And I think before we even get to the stage of the psychopathology side of adolescent mental health or young adult mental health, we want to think about health more broadly. How can college contexts provide 
more spaces for community, for building peer networks, which we realize and are embracing as some of the important pathways through which most of the educational goals for colleges have been attained, because it's the peer networks that uh, students build during their colleges that kind of sets them up for the labor market. And so I think higher education institutions have slowly embraced this notion that they are trying to help students build agency, cultivate a community so that they can come to belong in that institution so that they can integrate and perform to their best of abilities. And I think uh, students have started valuing that too. So they expect colleges to be welcoming, to be places where they can find uh, their intellectual passions, but also places where they can build community, adopt health behaviors, which we know actually have much longer effects in the life course. And so I think institutions and uh, students expect a lot more out of colleges these days, and rightfully so, because I think they are contexts where uh, students get to learn and thrive. And I think that's something that we have been thinking about a lot more from the research side when we started this study, where we really wanted to think about college students' experiences and relationships. And so the PI uh, of the study, uh, Stephanie Lanza from the Prevention Research Center and Ashley Linden Carmichael, who's also a friend and colleague, were talking about running this study, thinking about college experiences overall and thinking about how we can assess students' community, their sense of belonging, and what impact that might have, not just an academic, but also broadly on uh, their well-being and health. And that's the genesis of the study where we think about how social belonging on college campuses might have a pretty huge impact on uh, students' mental health. And all of this was much before the pandemic. And I'm sure we'll jump into it where we talk a little bit more about how we adapt the study when the pandemic hit and what came about from there. So prior to pandemic, an increase in in demands of what universities are are to provide to their student body, and then combined with greater need as a result of the pandemic and the challenges that that it brought. So to that point, I'd love to dig into a little more about what has been happening at CAPS and also at CCMH, Brett, as a result of the pandemic. What has, besides the increase in the volume of students who are either in crisis or approaching, what other dimensions of change have you seen? Thanks, Michael. That's a really good question. And the answer is really just nuanced in terms of what is happening nationally um, in terms of the landscape of college student mental health. So if you think about the rising demand and services that we talked about earlier, that was certainly something we saw up until the onset of the pandemic in March of 2020. And then we now have two years of data looking at what's happened post-pandemic. And contrary to what the, the national narrative is, actually there was a decline in the number of students seeking services nationally after the onset of the, on the, of the pandemic. There wasn't necessarily a decline in the mental health need, but there was a decline in the number of students seeking services. Many counseling centers had to abruptly shift to remote operations in March of 2020. Students were displaced and had to go home. And then we had almost an entire year where many colleges and universities in 2020 and 21 were operating in some kind of hybrid or remote instruction capacity. And college counseling centers were doing a lot of telehealth services. So 
And there was a combination of factors that led to this temporary decrease in students seeking services at college counseling centers, including students accessing services near their home or returning to previous providers during the remote instruction period, complicated interstate licensing laws regulating practice, and students' preferences for in-person services. When we examine the data from the most recent fall of 2021, utilization of services began to tick back up again closer to pre-COVID levels, but is not quite at the same level yet. We'll know more at the end of this year. So utilization declining, but it's starting to rise again to pre-COVID levels. And then in terms of what kind of concerns students are coming in for, that's also a nuanced picture as well. So we know that from last year's data, 94% of students are telling us that they're coming in with at least one or more areas of their life that are negatively impacted by COVID. And to highlight what Maitri was saying, when you ask them what areas have been impacted, loneliness and isolation certainly is one of the top ones. Mental health being negatively impacted, almost three quarters of students last year were saying that their mental health was negatively impacted. Motivation and focus, which we're seeing not only outside of the classroom, and that is also a something that's impacting people's academics. And an increasing area of concern that I'm seeing reported by students is missed experiences and opportunities. And I am becoming more worried about this over time, because if you think about the early part of the pandemic in March of 2020, there was a lot of different adjustments we had to make to our lives socially and developmentally in order to accommodate for this onset of this pandemic. So that looked like in the very beginning that students were missing gatherings. They were missing contact with their friends. But in a couple of months, that became a missed graduation and other developmental milestones. And I think we're seeing over time that students, um, especially the first year and a half of the pandemic, were missing out on opportunities that I think were um, stunting some of their development. So students that you're seeing right now might appear younger in their development because of some of these uh, missed opportunities. And moving to the clinical side of what are we seeing that's changed in terms of the the clinical concerns students are experiencing um, since the onset of the pandemic, eating disorders and eating disorder symptoms, certainly there's been a rise in that. Um, That's pretty well documented when you look up some of the reasons for that, the increase in isolation, especially early in the pandemic, the supply chain for certain food, exercise routines being disrupted. Academic distress has been a tremendous increase in academic distress since the onset of the pandemic. That's come down in the most recent fall 2021 data, but it's still much more elevated than pre-pandemic family distress. And one thing, one new trend that we found in the fall 2021 that was not present before was this rise in social anxiety, which many of us might anticipated, given that if you think of last year as a remote year where students had limited social contacts, when you bring people back together on campus, those people that had pre-existing social anxiety and possible new onset social anxiety from having these new social experiences where you're encountering some of those anxieties of and fears of being judged. How do I interact with this person? Are they evaluating me in some particular way? These are all symptoms of social anxiety.
I, I do wonder as well about the intersection of technology in this space. You mentioned the, the modality changes to telehealth and, and virtual settings and how that has been disruptive, but also potentially expanded some opportunities for, for those who may be less comfortable in-person settings. There's also challenges around our integration with technology around social media. And I noticed a piece in the New York Times this morning regarding reported adolescent mental health quality stemming from what they're showing as use of social media. I wonder if you had any notes, Brett, on just technology, the intersection there and how it's a double-edged sword. It's a great question, Michael. One of the things I wanted to add about what has changed that has been pretty consistent in the data is that students are increasingly telling us that they've had lifetime histories of traumatic experiences. And that has happened up until the fall of 2021. So students are coming in with increasing experiences of histories of trauma. And if you think about the last two years, it's been a collective trauma for many of us, where there's been many different experiences that caused us some kind of traumatic reaction. That could be loss, that could be abuse, that could be any other experience that we might consider traumatic, but that has certainly been what students have been telling us when they come in for services. Your question about technology is a really thoughtful one. So, we certainly in March of 2020 had to pivot in very short notice to remote services for students. That was telephone at first, then telehealth services and video conferencing platform services like Zoom in order to meet student needs. And that's been ongoing since. In terms of telehealth, what we have found, it certainly is a way to be very adaptable and it's a way to increase access for services. Some students prefer Zoom, but we have many students who still prefer the in-person experience and don't want any kind of telehealth service at all. So technology has helped us increase access for certain groups or certain people, but it has been a deterrent for others. So for example, the LGBTQ plus community, certainly that's well known that telehealth services can be an increasing uh, desirable option for that community because it can create access. But there's other students who it might serve as a deterrent and they might not opt into telehealth at all because that might be a barrier. First of all, they might not want to interact with their therapist through Zoom because they don't feel like they can get an authentic experience, but also um, there could be other complications, for example, being able to find a private space in order to do therapy. When you go to a therapist's office, you have that built-in privacy space. During the remote year last year, just anecdotally here at Penn State and just hearing stories nationally, that was a, a significant challenge when you were Zooming with your, your client. Sometimes those clients would be in a private space. Sometimes they would be outside in a public area with other people connecting with their therapist. We, but we had to make do with what we had. Understood. Maitri, based on some of the trends that Brett and the larger CCMH research community have identified through their data collection, have you seen any kind of similar conclusions from your larger student survey work? Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Brett, for that wonderful background. And I think here it might be really useful to distinguish between clinical samples or students who seek 
mental health services through CCMH that Brett was talking about and the larger student body, right? And so there's a lot more to mental health before students basically come to this point where they feel like they have to go seek those services. And so our study kind of looks at that broader stage of things. And so instead of a clinical sample, we asked students uh, a whole host of questions, but also screener questions for their depression, anxiety, were they feeling sad? So maybe they weren't so depressed that they wanted to go to CCMH or CAPS, but maybe there was this nagging worry about how to get integrated on campus, how to manage the Zoom environment. And we did see that depression and anxiety uh, went uh, up during the pandemic quite a bit, both in our larger survey, but also in other larger surveys done in multiple contexts. And we have a couple of papers looking at it. Stephanie had a paper coming out in PLOS One recently that looked at how there are like significant increases uh, in depression and anxiety. In my own study, the one in Journal of Adolescent Health that I was mentioning earlier, also showed that. So students' depression, depressive symptoms went up, their anxiety went up during this period. But surprisingly, their reports about their sense of belonging on campus did not change dramatically over this period of time. So we actually, in fact, found that they stayed the same across the two waves that we had our survey. So prior to the pandemic, uh, they reported their sense of belonging on campus and how it changed. They weren't statistically significant. There was the same. But we did find interesting patterns and heterogeneous patterns across different student groups, right? So we found that students uh, from minoritized backgrounds Black and brown students, as well as first-generation college students, reported significantly lower sense of belonging with their institution. And this is a concerning and consistent finding from other national surveys as well. And uh, But we found that if students had reported a higher sense of belonging prior to the pandemic, because we had our first wave done before the pandemic, that really buffered them from depression and anxiety. So those students who reported higher sense of belonging, they built their communities and networks that in on campus, and that really seemed to have buffered them from uh, reporting higher levels of depression um, and anxiety. And I think uh, it's this is where I think there's a key distinction between the larger student body and the clinical sample that seeks counseling services. I also think that at the same time when the pandemic happened, which was the largest change in the higher education institution landscape, we also know that in this country, there was the most of George Floyd and there was a racial reckoning and students definitely felt disparate impacts of those larger societal happenings and that also changed how students reported their depression and anxiety and that's something that I completely share the worries that Brett uh, was sharing earlier that these are something that we really need to keep uh, track of and ensure that higher education institutions across not just beyond CCMH and CAPS, but like faculty, staff, student affairs professionals, all of us need to, I think, have uh, a stronger uh, sense of uh, responsibility towards this generation growing up during the pandemic and to support them in uh, ways that goes beyond academics as well. Well said. It really shows the the complexity of of the situation and and then how the needs have uh, increased as a result of the environmental context. It's really interesting to think as a sense of belonging as a potential protective factor for further 
need, which would then be captured in the clinical services setting. And I know we, we will be able to discuss a little bit more about prevention as we go along here. And Maitre, I really appreciate your point on thinking about the larger ecosystem, right? While college students are, are one you know, big part of the question that we're discussing today, Another part of that is ensuring that the workforce, the practitioners and counselors, administrators working in collegiate mental health settings, how do we ensure that they don't get burned out and leave the field uh, or just exhausted by such incredible need? Brett, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that and what your team at CAPS and the larger CCMH network have been experiencing. Michael, this is actually a major concern for the field of collegiate mental health is staff burnout, but also staff turnover. So it's people that are we're finding that are leaving the field and going to alternative employment opportunities. So we know that's happening in a lot of different jobs. And the counseling center world, it's no different where there's been an exodus of counselors as well as administrators. So staff burnout is something that we're definitely interested in, as well as staff turnover. We actually plan to study this nationally this summer, looking at staff turnover at counseling centers and seeing what are some correlates of staff turnover and what might be some of the impacts of that on the services that are provided. I went back and, and looked at some of our findings from a couple of years ago, and it's, it really it shouldn't be surprising that staff burnout um, is something we're dealing with now. And I'll just look read you some data here. So this is from 2019 to 2020. And this so this goes into the early phase of the end. Uh, pandemic. But 50% of counseling centers nationally said that their routine individual counseling appointments are scheduled every two to three weeks instead of weekly. When you see clients that spread out, that can cause distress for the therapist and the client when you diffuse treatment that much. So 43% of counseling centers said that they retain the most uh, severe and chronic cases internally and don't have any options to refer them out to external services. That can create certainly some stress on the counseling center staff. 39% said that in addition to the daytime work time hours, they're also responsible for providing after hours, 24-hour coverage for students. That's 39% of counseling centers nationally say that. So in addition to your daytime job, you have a 24-hour rotation of dealing with emergency calls. And then 23% said that their administration does not allow them to reduce the number of clinical hours that they take on when they have additional administrative responsibilities. So if you look at some of these examples of characteristics or policies that counseling centers use, it's no doubt that over time that can create um, burnout, compassion fatigue among the staff. So job duties, just like counseling center demand has risen over the last 20 years, so has the job duties of clinicians. And each week, it seems like clinicians are doing more One of the consequences of rising demand for services is that annual caseloads have also increased for counselors at those centers. And we at CCMH developed a metric to investigate this nationally called the Clinical Load Index. The Clinical Load Index basically is a measure of what the average annual caseload of a clinician is at that center. So when we say a center has an annual caseload or CLI score 
of 150, that means that the average full-time clinician at that center sees 150 students and responsible for the care of 150 students across the year, which is actually high. So we've been able to show in the research over the last two years that as annual caseloads of clinicians rise, their access to and the quantity and frequency of treatment actually reduces. Students receive less care that is more diffuse and scheduled further apart, which leads to poorer outcomes where they do not experience as much improvement after receiving services. This past year, we examined the relationship between high caseloads and the amount of care received by students with critical needs, often prioritized by colleges and universities, such as students with suicide risk. We found that higher caseloads are associated with less treatment for all groups of students, even those with high-risk needs. Administrators within colleges and universities can't delude themselves. Counseling centers at a lower level, everybody receives less care. And how this relates to burnout is that when counselors over time work at centers where you are responsible for more and more people, and especially people with critical safety concerns and critical clinical issues, and you're providing less care that's more diffuse to those groups, it can lead to burnout and compassion fatigue when you're providing fewer and fewer services to those high-risk groups. So we're going to make efforts this year to actually study whether some of these policies actually impact staff turnover nationally. Good points, Brett. Thank you so much. And Maitri, similarly, how might the issue of burnout among counselors and administrators affect how students perform in university? Absolutely. And the concerns that Brett raised about staff in, uh, and clinicians in mental health centers, that's similar across student affairs professionals, right? Administrators in university, advisors. We know that teachers from K-12 schools have been really burned out with the switch. If I have to teach one more online course, I don't know, maybe I'll switch to a different career too. But this burnout is real and it goes beyond I think just the mental health centers and staff there. So we have staff turnover within our universities, within our departments. And all of that, I think, really affects some of the services in the continuity of care that students get even beyond the mental health centers. So, for example, advising. Again, students build relationships with advisors. They build relationships with the staff in a department who they interact with the most, starting from the fact that Uh, Students need quite a bit of help in terms of figuring out, picking classes, choosing classes. Advisors help them with that. So do faculty and staff in departments. And so I think it has a pretty large effect on the broader student population as well. And we worry that uh, students are not getting the amount of advising and continuity of care they need to not just perform well academically, but to thrive academically, right? And we think that institutions, higher education institutions, need to think a little bit more about what kind of services they can uh, provide, especially for students navigating this transition from the online world to hybrid world to finally back uh, in person in ways. And so I think that's really important to think about as uh, a policy implication at the college level, but also at the higher state and national levels. And we can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I would love to direct the the conversation in that that way. We've discussed 
so many of the challenges here affecting both sides of the equation. And it would uh, be important to, to think about what silver linings are there? What indications are there for hope? And how can that be applied in larger policy settings beyond the university setting as well? And this Absolutely. is for, for either of you, please. Yeah, I can start off and Brett can definitely jump in whenever. But I think the one silver lining uh, for me is the attention college students' mental health is receiving during this pandemic. The fact that it's brought to national attention, the fact that students' depression and anxiety have been through the roof and that they might not be seeking or uh, having access to the care that they need in colleges has really come to the fore and public consciousness. There's been multiple articles in New York Times talking about that, the social isolation um, and the loneliness has been talked about quite a bit. The U.S. Surgeon General talked about uh, the youth mental health pandemic recently, uh, and there have been multiple calls from the National Institutes of Health to study college mental health more intensely, not just thinking about clinical samples, but how can we do a prevention effort so that maybe advisors can seek out and provide the services? Maybe they can reach out to students and check in. And there's been a lot of interesting prevention interventions, study from the uh, education policy angle as well, where staff and advisor reaching out through text messages, peer mentoring groups set up on campus, having an effect on students uh, feeling like they belong on campus and to together ride the wave that they have been right now is something that we should be thinking about. And there's been quite a bit of attention. Like I said, there are multiple calls and grant applications that have been opened by the National Institute of Mental Health by other foundations that really want to understand the effect the pandemic is having on college students' mental health uh, and academic outcomes more broadly, because we think that the academic outcomes is a lagging indicator and it's going to have uh, a much more of an impact as we uh, proceed, especially students who started college during the pandemic and how they are able to navigate this transition and uh, how faculty, student affairs, counselors, uh, all mental health support uh, staff can provide to colleges. And I think that is the bright spot in the sense that the increased attention and destigmatization of mental health issues is, I think, one of the bright spots from this era. I really agree with Maitri. I think we have been very successful at our destigmatization efforts in terms of having students reach out for college counseling services when they um, need support and need help. We have proven that over the last 20 years. Um, we have been able to identify students who need that and get them access to care. One of the things that's been the challenge is that there hasn't been a parallel level of funding to accommodate those students when they actually receive care. And that has led to a crisis narrative of, wow, we have all these students seeking help and we don't have enough capacity to accommodate that. If we look at a parallel medical analogy, there are many different screenings that the medical community does to see if you have a medical issue, colon cancer, any kind of cancer screening. If you screen positive and you do a, a screening effort to identify people that need support and need help and then refer those people to a medical community for help and they don't have enough capacity, we don't tell those people, well, you don't have enough resilience. You actually shouldn't get care. 
The crisis is a lack of treatment capacity to provide services for students who are increasingly reaching out for help based on our 20 years of success destigmatizing mental health services. What we do know that Maitri put so nicely was we need to think about the different populations. So there's the clinical population, which CCMH investigates, and then there's the general student population. In any given day in a college and university, you can do a screening and probably close to half the student population, maybe 35 to 50%, might screen positive for some kind of mental health concern that might warrant a referral for clinical services. That would be like the true need of your population. But we know nationally, the average utilization rate of counseling services is somewhere between 10 to 12%. That difference is what we call the need gap. We know that those students with unmet needs might feel supported and benefit from a variety of different types of services, which does not always involve receiving individual therapy from a licensed mental health clinician. As Maitri was saying, there's peer support, there's wellness platforms, there's wellness initiatives within universities that help students. And there's just a community-wide effort that probably could be done to help students and address the, the community level need. And everybody in the, in the academic community needs to be involved in order to accomplish that. We call it in the collegiate mental health community going upstream versus downstream. And in prevention science, there's three different types of preventions. There's uh, primary prevention, which is doing interventions before a problem exists. There's secondary prevention, which is early intervention or when symptoms first onset. And then there's tertiary, which is treatment. My field does a lot of tertiary level care. That is pushing services downstream. So when you refer all your clients or all students with mental health distress to counseling center, that's focusing on moving everything downstream. Moving upstream is looking at things more holistically and a continuum of care options within the university in order to support students' wellness. Well, I think the best science on this right now and best thinking is that universities need to think more holistically and upstream and downstream about what services they have available. So definitely counseling centers, many counseling centers are underfunded. And so we need to fund downstream, but we also need to think about what we're doing upstream to support students. What are some ways that academic and practitioner environments, communities can really work together more effectively and more efficiently to achieve these changes? This is really one of our our favorite questions on the podcast. How do we better bridge these communities? Absolutely. I'll just add to that how as researchers um, and faculty members, we strive for something like that, where there's collaboration between researchers and practitioners. And these research practice partnerships are, I think, hugely important to identify the need and to design interventions that can help in preventing both upstream and downstream. For example, when we write an application for NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health, we have an advisory board that includes student affairs professionals that includes folks from counseling services who can help inform some of these upstream interventions that can provide some of these services before they become a clinical sample. 
And I think this kind of collaboration would be really important. So Brett, I'll be excited to talk to you some more at a future point about sharing data and having more conversations so that we can have a more combined research practice collaboration going forward, especially when it comes to college students' mental health. Brett, did you have any additional things you wanted to add about ways to combine these two communities? Absolutely. I would welcome that collaboration. At CCMH, we have counseling center staff. We have a national advisory board of counseling center administrators who advise us on projects and directions for our research. And we also have two faculty who are full-time professors who consult and have been involved from our project from day one, and that is Dr. Louis Castingway, as well as Dr. Jeff Hayes. And they are a pivotal and integral part of our research mission. And so we would definitely welcome additional faculty and academic collaborators on our project. I think all that we have left is opportunity for closing remarks. If you have anything you wanna sum up, Thank you so much for the invitation, Michael, and a huge shout out to Melissa Krug, who does a lot of behind the scenes action to get this podcast out, I'm sure. Uh, it was lovely to meet you, Brett, and to think about these options. But uh, the one thing that I would um, end up with is a plug for my own research agenda, because I think we think about health and education as two different pieces, but I think they're really interconnected. The bidirectional influences, especially in school and college contexts, that move from mental health to educational outcomes and educational outcomes affecting mental health and well-being needs to be studied more. It should be a lot more attention. And that's what I hope to be spending the next uh, four or five years of my career researching. And so thank you so much for that invitation, Marco. Wonderful. Thank you. And Brett, any thoughts from you? Thank you so much for inviting us, Michael. This has been a a true pleasure. Thank you, Melissa. And uh, thank you, Maitri. This has been an honor. Just to highlight, again, what we have known for the last 20 years, rising demand for services, which has been a success. The consequences of not funding clinical services that parallels that has led to rising caseloads for clinicians nationally. And those have had profound negative consequences for the students who receive care at those centers, including less treatment that's more spread out and less effective outcomes. And that's been for any group, no matter what clinical concern you have or what identity group that you identify as. And we are increasingly worried about what the impact on staff is. So our next steps are to look at counseling center staff turnover and try to understand what are some correlations between center practices and outcomes and what might better improve the staffing levels nationally. I also want to share that Over the last 20 years, we've become really good at CCMH at understanding what's happening at the client level and at the center level. So we know client impacts, we know what center impacts are and how that affects clients and clinical care. But the next horizon that we want to look at is going above the counseling center to look at characteristics of the institutions and actually some of the census data and looking at the society itself to see what might be impacting 
client care because we know there's larger macro variables at play that we just don't fully understand now. And that's our next frontier at CCMH. And we would um, love to have academic collaboration on that. Myself, Dr. Jeff Hayes, and Dr. Louie Castingway, and Rebecca Janis, who is our Associate Director of Data Science, are actually taking those steps right now to better understand that. Wonderful. I love that systems level approach and happy to support and uh, connect you with as many academic partners as possible. That was really an exciting frontier. Thank you both for your time today and for this enlightening conversation. I think there's lots of challenges, but of course, lots of things to be hopeful for. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Maitri Gopalan and Dr. Brett Schofield. Maitri is an assistant professor of education and public policy here at Penn State. Brett serves as the Associate Director of Counseling and Psychological Services, or CAPS, at Penn State, and also as the Executive Director of the Center for Collegiate Mental Health, or CCMH. Wonderful. Thank you both for your time. I really appreciate it. And with that, we'll bring this episode to a close. Many thanks to my guests. Again, I'm your host, Michael Donovan, the Director of Policy and Outreach at Penn State's Administrative Data Accelerator and the Associate Director at the Evidence to Impact Collaborative. And this has been another episode of the Evidence to Impact podcast. Thanks for listening.